This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dojo Live. Today is Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. This is Tulio Sargusa. And joining me today are Kim Lantis in Hermosillo, Mexico, and Carlos Ponce in Cuernavaca, Mexico. Welcome to the show, guys. Pleasure to be here. It's ever to you. We have our guests today. I hope I get today. to join you. My internet's sucking. <laughs> well, hopefully. We'll see. Uh, in the interim, we want to welcome our guests. We have Jennifer Wild and Dan McClury, who are both with Innovation Ecosystem. Welcome to the show. And Jennifer, you're broadcasting from Sydney, Australia. Thank you. And Dan, welcome as well. And where are you in Northern California? Where are you based, Dan? Oh, Northern California would be really nice, but actually Michigan. So Michigan, we've got okay. snow and cold and wow. not California weather. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, we have a good representation here of everybody from different places. There. So we're talking att- about innovation. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say you can attest to the weather, right, Tulio? Southern California? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we're having a lot of rain and wind today, but I did live in New York and Boston for many years, so I'm familiar with the very cold, frigid weathers of the, the northern part of the states, in the winters at least. I don't miss it. So uh, in any case, we're talking about innovation today. When it comes to innovation, there's so many ways to go about it and so many tools out there. But let's see what we can learn and unpack today from our guests. But before we do that, We'd like to get to know you both uh, a little bit. If you can tell us about yourself, introduce yourself to the audience, and then let's find out what the innovation ecosystem is all about. But first, let's start with an introduction from our guests. Welcome to the show again. Hi, it's so great to be here. Um, my background is really in humanitarian emergencies. So if you imagine big conflicts, earthquakes, typhoons, Um, and dealing with complex problems, big challenges within those. Um, So I just, I love getting my hands around difficult problems. I love thinking about big value and big impact and big opportunities and working out ways through the kind of complexity that exists there. I've set up innovation labs all around the world. Um, I've kind of run large country teams, um, and now I am a managing partner at Innovation Ecosystem. Thanks, Jennifer. And my background actually involves a lot of disruption, but um, perhaps less real-world crisis than Jen. Um, I've been involved with industries, organizations, businesses, that have been really facing dramatic change. So either they've been deregulated, there's some new competitor coming in, just sweeping the rug of all the incumbents. You know, there's all this disruption that you find in perhaps the most interesting parts of the the business space. And that's where I've spent most of my career is working on those really complex, messy disruptions. Well, it's great to have you both. You know, you can define messy disruption in a number of ways, right? You have humanitarian natural disasters, and then you have 
unnatural disasters like the recent news we had of the CEO who fired everybody on Zoom. That's a pretty disastrous way of doing things <laughs> that uh, that affects a lot of lives. So let's talk uh, about the topic today. Please, Kim, if you could introduce. Oh, oh, tell us a bit about innovation ecosystem, please, before we get into the topic. What is the yeah, company all about? Happy to. Thanks, Tulio. Um, innovation ecosystem works with companies, entrepreneurs, um, people who want to do more, people who see big opportunities or are being faced by big challenges and say, I need to do something now and I need a new tool set, I need a new way of innovating to get through that. So we do plenty of um, agile transformations. We work on specific projects with, you know, Fortune 10 companies, Fortune 500 companies. Um, and we work on anything from really kind of US-wide programs to, you know, a new global product, uh, just helping organisations and companies sort through some of the big challenges of creating big value. Great. Let's see what we can unpack today and go right into the topic. If, Carlos, you could introduce and kick it off. We'd love to hear Absol all we can today. <clears throat> Absolutely. I hope I'm not on mute. I'm not on mute, right? No. <laughs> That's my trademark. I, wanted, I just wanted to say it. All right. So, well, first of all, thank you, Jennifer, and Dan, for being with us today. So today, we're going to be discussing rally with the innovation tools of today. And uh, for that, we have the topic as chosen by our guests today, which is bigger opportunities are awaiting for you, are waiting for you. First question that I have for Jennifer and Dan uh, is why did you choose this particular topic and why did you feel it was relevant for today's day and age? Let's start there, please. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, it, Jen and I often have a debate when we're going in and trying to talk about system innovation and system change. And do you lead with the world is ending, disruption is at your doorstep, and life is about to end as you know it? Or do you lead with, hey, you know, there's big, amazing opportunities out there, and you can transform your business in the world. As it turns out, both are true and both really speak to the same part of this challenge is when you start thinking about systems, you can make bigger changes either in response to threats or opportunities. But we chose this particular title because I think it reflects where we sit right now, that there is so much change going on in the world and folks are oftentimes so you know, wrought about it. But in reality, this is a period of tremendous opportunity if you know how to, you know, re respond with the right kinds of innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for elaborating on that. And uh, as uh, Greg Brayton would put it, it's a time of extremes. So that I am pretty much aligned with what you're saying. So questions are going to be starting to pour in, but of course, Tulio, Kim, please, please, yeah, back to you. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Kim. I'll hold off on my Thank question. Thank you. I guess my, I think what you're saying speaks to me um, personally. I guess my question for you is, 
what does it take and where is the balance between someone's natural tendency to be able to find and look at the lining is how much of that is a learning techniques we can utilize to be more that way I don't know if everybody heard the question. You're chopped. You're kind of getting chopped yeah. up, Kim. If you don't to type it in the chat window here, and we'll make sure we get it to Dan and, and, and Jennifer. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm curious about when you talk about innovation and different tools that are available. Uh, there's a number of ways to go about innovation. I'm a big believer of design thinking. I think uh, the root of design thinking is, is is empathy, which is key to be able to understand. Uh, the human elements of how to solve big problems. What is your philosophy around the tools for innovation that our people, our company's disposal, our people's disposal? Love to understand what your thought process is around innovation tools for today. Yeah, so Jen and I actually did a study of 500 innovation tools earlier this year. And what we concluded is there's a whole bunch of innovation tools. But when you really distill it down, there's four major methodologies. So there's the traditional project planning. We're going to analyze, decompose the project, and then create a plan with stage gates, you know, the waterfall world. There's lean, where you basically have a well-established system and you can test and modify, test and modify. So this is you know, classic coming out of Toyota quality management and such. And then there appears to be your favorite, Tulio, which is, you know, product-based design thinking, where you go and you understand a specific problem and you really engage the user to design a solution around that specific problem. We challenge that all three of those are designed to deal with some simplified form of innovation. You know, when you're a project planner, you're assuming that it's gonna be easy to design a product under a fixed environment, or you're gonna have a small change, or you're gonna have a specific user. Our focus is really on system innovation. And Jen, I know you can talk to that a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, system innovation, when we talk about dealing with big problems or um, or big threats, I think one of the challenges is in so many um, innovational product teams around the world, there is such a focus on a product or such a kind of focus on if you speak to boys 15 to 19, you'll be able to see how they feel about buying X, about downloading Y app. Um, and when we get to some of these bigger um, bigger issues, things like um, creating an agile enterprise, um, creating different education systems, creating a new global product, there is there are so many parts to them. You know, there's not just um, the boy, 15 to 19-year-old, his thoughts. There's global supply chain issues, which we've seen come out very um, significantly this year. There's the kind of community attitudes and behaviours around that boy. There's his parents. There's where he lives. There's the kind of policies and governance around um, what that product is, and you see that clearly with things like Airbnb and Uber as an ongoing issue as they scale. You see, um, 
a range of different issues that kind of from a range of different actors. So it's not just the boy who's 15 to 19, but it's, you know, his teachers, it's the people he listens to on YouTube or or wherever he's getting his um, his information. And so when you're dealing with a lot of the kind of bigger problems today, you need to start piecing together all of those parts to see how does it affect my user? How does it affect the person I'm trying to create value for? Um, and that's where you can find real leverage real um, big value and I think a, a, a greater impact for your business or the challenge you're trying to solve. Um, and to do that, you really need to step back and look at the bigger picture. So rather than the kind of 80-20 or, um, you know, MVP, build the skateboard, you need to say, okay, I'm going to step back. What does this whole thing look like so I can work out where to get started? Kim, let's see if Jeff, your internet's we, working we, now. Kim, there? I I don't think so. All right, maybe Carlos can, can ask your question. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> here, here, here's to Kim's question. Well, she was wondering how much of a positive response to a crisis is a natural part of a person's makeup. For example, whether you either have it or you don't, and how much can be learned. And when it comes to learned behavior, how can we facilitate that? So I think if we're talking about crisis, you know, what is really a crisis? It's not necessarily just big change. A crisis is really a big change that you have inability to respond to. It breaks your systems in a way that you can't respond. And I think one of the things that innovation has tended to fail on is that it tends to treat like the ways that we can respond to bigger challenges um, in too limited a way. And I think when you get good at seeing these bigger system responses, you actually are able to embrace the complexity, embrace the, con the, the, the crisis, so that you can run into a burning building and know that, like, I can figure out how to deal with this. So I think it's less in some ways about a behavior or a personality type and more about an actual belief that I can confront complexity and I can do something with it. Mm, yeah, I, I definitely nope. um, would agree with Dan. And I think when what you see in really big crises like, you know, the Haiti earthquake or a huge typhoon um, that's ripped through a country, et cetera, is you see one of the biggest issues is not necessarily I've lost my house, I've lost possibly friends and family members, um, I've lost my job and the ability to um, make money possibly for years, the ability to kind of provide a livelihood for, um, for my family. But you see that all coming together in the loss of hope and the loss of really thinking about what can I do for the future because some of those possibilities dry up. And, you know, if you can imagine whatever your kind of five-year plan is, whether you have it or whether it's, it's loose, you know, your children going to college, maybe it's improving your house, maybe it's getting that, um, that raise or that new job or, you know, building that new um, program. 
if that all disappears overnight, one of the most important things you can do for someone is actually provide them with opportunity, provide them with some kind of hope or, you know, you're not providing them with a plan but some kind of idea of what could the future look like for you? What could we do instead of um, instead of just sitting in what exists now, which is not a good place to be? Um, and that, you know, no matter about individual behaviours or if you kind of freeze or fight during a crisis, your background, what's happened to you, being able to have, be able to support someone to have a vision for the future, to work out how they can get out of a really bad place can be one of the most important things you can do. Great. Um, quick question. I mean, we in over the course of the a little bit more more than six years that we have been doing Dojo Live, we had we have had quite a few discussions and conversations centered around innovation in different verticals and spaces, ranging from uh, health technology, um, oil and gas. Uh, even, you know, the, the workplace itself. So there's a lot of spaces in, we, in which we can this, uh, bring in the topic of innovation as a tool to make progress in today's busy world, say the least. From your perspective, what are the, let's call it these, the verticals and the spaces that could benefit more from having this innovation mindset that could even bring about uh you know, results beyond what have already been, could have been expected if we had not gone through, let's say, the pandemic, for example. So uh, is there anything, any space or vertical in particular that you feel could benefit more from this innovation mindset? Um, I think the short answer is pretty much everyone. Um, so Klaus Schwab, when he was talking about the fourth industrial revolution, um, you know, from the world um, economic forum, he basically said every industry is going to be transformed in the years ahead. And I think when you look at things from a systems disruption perspective, there's hardly any industry that's not going to be really pushed into brand new spaces. So I would say everywhere is the short answer. But if you're going to say those people who are going to be the first over the edge of the disruption cliff, It's going to be sectors that have really tightly bound up, deeply integrated operations like education, um, healthcare, where there's just going to be a huge opportunity to break the existing system and really rebundle it and you know configure it in new and different ways. So you know it's those big, deeply institutional um, sectors that I think are going to be you know maybe first over the cliff. But almost everybody, I think, is likely to be there um, sooner or later, and probably much sooner. Great. Excellent. So uh, we've been talking a great deal about how disasters sometimes give birth to innovation. In fact, quite often it does. People always say, oh, that was like a blessing in disguise. Look mm -hmm. at what we're doing now. You hear that, right? which is a reactive approach to innovation. It's forced upon us because of need that it, to survive, essentially, in many cases. 
so how do we shift from this reactive approach, which is, you know, disaster uh, comes upon us and then we have to intervene, fix it, to proactively taking an approach of breaking it before it, you know, before it needs to be fixed and or fixing it before it breaks. What's the thought process to help organizations shift from reactive to be more proactive about uh, continuously innovating, in your opinions? You know, it's a great question, and I think it's something that all we can all reflect on after this year. <laughs> what you find in disasters is you find an incredible urgency um, for action and you find something that is very clearly and obviously shifted. The change is, is right in front of you. You can't not do anything about it. Whereas I think often in, um, in the kind of regular life, there, that urgency is kind of a, a far away call and you see things changing, but it can be a bit like the Titanic where you say, you know, we're too big to fail or we can just run through that iceberg and it's fine. And, um, and you, when you're going through agile transformations, you often hear the urgency call much louder than before if it's a good um, transformation. And you also very clearly hear why, what are the reasons the organisation needs to change? Why do we need to do something different? Um, so I think it's the leadership being really clear or groups within organisations being really clear on what is that urgency, why is change needed, and taking that very closely to the chest and saying this is it, this is where we are, um, and this is what we need to do. I think the second piece is in an emergency, it's very obvious because the change is there that you just need to work in a flexible way. So if you arrive uh, in a, you know, after an earthquake, day three, you don't know what roads are open, you don't know where people are, you're kind of really piece by piece sending out kind of cars and people to work out how far you can get and what it looks like, helicopters, etc. And you're working out what is this new lay of the land and what am I able to do in small um, uh, small kind of plans and then growing from there and pivoting along the way. So you can't have a five-year plan. You can't have a kind of perfectly organised one-year project. Um, and that is real agility, you know, Teams who are decentralised and aligned and moving around and sharing information and learning and growing and changing. Um, and so, again, all these principles exist. All this kind of how do we do this exists, but it's really taking them to heart and saying if, if we live in a time, in a sector uh, of change, if we want to be the best in the world at X, then we need to be truly agile. Then we need to be, you know, not just three teams that kind of go out next to the organisation and find stuff and then it's difficult to scale within an organisation. But that whole organisation needs to work like a system together, aligned towards a common purpose with urgency. And I know you've been... Uh putting out there some tools to facilitate that process, right? The 30 days to powerful power innovation, 
the Next Generation Innovation Toolkit. Can you tell uh, for the audience what this is and where they can find it? Yeah, I think the thing to re understand here is where, while we talk about tools, and we certainly work with tools, I there is a fundamental difference in the way innovation is done with system innovation. And that's really the groundwork for this. So system innovation begins by seeing the big scope of the problem. And so a lot of the initial tools around how do we really see a complete problem with all the pieces and the parts interwoven, rather than focusing on a particular user or a particular feature or need. From there, we look at what's the future system that you need. And so, you know, Jen mentioned that, you know, you don't have a fixed plan, but that doesn't mean you don't have a, a, a vision. You do have a vision of how you want the system to ultimately end up. And then you're very adaptive as you go to, to that direction. And then that's the third key step is that you adaptively involve. So the tools are all based around this idea of these three major steps, see the big picture, envision a future state, and then evolve your way from present system to the future system. And, you know, that's really a big difference from the way you would normally pursue most innovations. I'm listening and I can't help relate to this idea of individual self-awareness, right? The more an individual becomes self-aware, the more they realize the things they need to work on and things they need to change in order to achieve their objectives or goals in life. And and burying your head in the sand isn't going to help you with that, right? You can you can have this aspirational truth of who you are, or you can be really raw and honest about where you are and make the changes you need to make to, to lead the kind of life you want to lead. So what I'm hearing is you've sort of institutionalized this idea of being aware of where you are as an organization, as an institution of what the problems are, and looking at it from an authentic, truthful place not an aspirational truth because often you know you've got leaders who are selling the aspirational truth to the board or to the investors but you have to be honest internally with where you really are because the crisis only happens because you're not prepared right i mean this is kind of what we're hearing and so how you how do you help organization tap into basically becoming aware of where they are right now what are some of the effective ways to help them just be honest with themselves at first in order to then see the problem that they can eventually, you know, create innovation around. What, what's the, what's, do you have a use case where you can maybe yeah. draw from to give us an example? You know, it's interesting because I think it's often common to frame this as, you know, a problem of leadership vision or leadership honesty, you know, that it's, that kind of problem that if you just got the people, you know, aligned in the right direction, things would be okay. What we see is more often it's the problem that it really is complex, the situation you're in. You know, if you really do have problems as an organization in a very complex space, it can take a lot of effort to untangle what that is. And oftentimes the obvious solutions aren't the things that actually 
you know, are what really are at the heart of where your challenges go. And so we spend a lot of time working with organizations around, let's just draw a complete picture of your world. And, you know, we've done this with climate change. We've done it with, you know, large corporations that are working in, in like healthcare. And, you know, Jen, you've done this in places that, you know, are really quite remote. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I guess to add to that, you know, sometimes we can talk about having an out-of-business experience. So really saying, I'm going to come up above the kind of everyday grey and I'm going to say, what does this look like altogether? Or the other idea is kind of rather than looking through a keyhole, open that door, see that whole picture, which can really change the way people perceive what they're doing and, and what they have to do. So, and what they have to move forward with. An example is um, I was uh, working on a project that was looking at child malnutrition in South Sudan. And I walked into a room, there was a number of organisations there um, who had been working on this for a long time. And we said, okay, so, um, you know, let's put it all on the table. What do, we, what do we think needs to be done here? And plenty of people in the room agreed if we could get a piece of tech to work, you know, out in the back of, of South Sudan to monitor child malnutrition, then we'd be able to find out, you know, who's malnutritioned when and where they were. And that would significantly decrease um, child malnutrition in South Sudan. And um, I said, okay, you know, that sounds interesting. Let's, um, let's, let's draw this picture. Let's, you know, put the child in the centre and what is the mother and um, caregivers, what are, how do they respond and interact with child malnutrition? And how does the community and food habits affect that? How does um, funding flows internationally uh, and regionally affect that? What about the treatment systems and the health systems and the, you know, and, you, you know, community nutrition volunteers and how they're trained and moving back and back and opening this space up? And when we looked at this whole picture of, of what, it, what it really is in the real world, um, what supports and, um, and improves child malnutrition, actually we said, you know, if, if we could just teach the parent, mother, to better identify child malnutrition, actually that would probably make, um, make much bigger impact far increased child malnutrition. And as we looked at programs and, um, and as those programs continue, there's huge scientific research now that very small investments in that kind of work can make a huge difference to children. And so it's interesting because sometimes it can be something, you know, the, the most simple answer where you're just looking through that keyhole or where you're in the business and you're saying, we've just got to do this and you're kind of, you know, you're moving around every day it can feel right, that kind of incremental change to what you're already doing, but actually stepping out of that complexity and saying, in reality, what does this look like, can allow you a lot, uh, a lot more opportunities to um, get higher impact, to move around some of the barriers that currently exist in your challenge and just to better understand where you are. Great. Well, we're 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 up on time. We could talk this topic for for hours. But before we wrap up, we'd love to 
just getting words of wisdom, final words of wisdom in terms of organizations that might be facing some of these complexities. How do they go about simplifying it? Mm. Can I challenge that? Maybe instead of simplifying it, they should embrace the complexity. They should say, our world is complex, and both the challenges and the opportunities are rooted in that complexity. And so rather than trying to simplify it, rather than trying to use one of those three other methods of innovation, take the innovation model that basically says complexity is our friend. And I think that, in the end, is going to be the best path to success. It's been great to have you both on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Lots to think about, for sure. Uh, please stay with us as we go off the air in just a minute and uh, wrap up. Uh, what do we got coming up for the rest of the week, Carlos? Two shows, Julio. We have one tomorrow. We're going to be speaking with Deep Varma, the CTO of Varo Bank. And the topic is going to be using technology to build a bank for all. And then on Thursday, we're having the final, uh, well, not the, uh, the final uh, show at this time at 12 p.m. Pacific. That's going to be with Richard Galvez, the Director of Software and Data Science at Clean Robotics. And the topic is going to be very, very interesting, very timely for today's day and age, which is reducing landfill globally by diverting recyclables and compost using AI and robotics. That's what we have for this week. And uh, then after that, we're taking off for the holidays. And then we'll reconvene here again on January the first week to continue with our awesome, incredible interviews in Dojo Live. That's what we have. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow, 12 o'clock Pacific. See you so soon. Have fun. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.